Today's interview is with Scott Hawking. I met Scott Hawking four years ago in Detroit in 2016, but we'd had some mutual connections because I'd interviewed the artist Mark Dion for and a couple of other people that knew Scott Hawking. But his work has fascinated me because he does these crazy installations using what's in the city. They're monumental, but they're made out of the debris from the city. And he's also a photographer and he's generally a sculpture, sculptor, but he's currently has work in the Crystal Bridges Museum in, in uh, Arkansas. And he's got stuff at the Cranbrook Museum, but he's, a lot of his uh, work is just, is in the city. And they're t temporary installations that which might take quite a while to make. And excuse the interview, it's about an hour and 40 minutes. And for about the first 40 minutes, I think we talked about baseball and our fathers and all these crazy stories, but it was a great time talking to him. I just realized I've got a Detroit cup. Oh, how appropriate. I don't know if you knew that I lived in Detroit when I was a kid. You know, you might've told me something about that, but I'd be happy to hear it again. Well, I lived there um, when I was a kid. My, I mean, I was from, I'm from Florida, but my dad got a job there and we were there a couple of years, but I was there we moved there in 67. I was in 68. They won the World Series with McLean and all that. The right. Tigers, the Tigers, and uh, I got obsessed with baseball. My whole family did, you know. Okay. We, I was playing little league, and it was just like it was just like everything was baseball, you know. Like it was, but it was also during the riots we were there. Right. And I remember just being completely confused because I could hear gunshots from my house, but my dad was like actually the only person that actually said. I can understand why black people are upset. He said they've been fucked with their whole lives. Right. Every other white person told me like they were like dangerous. Yeah. The the classic refrain from white suburbanites is not understanding. Yeah, that was kind of a different character though, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny. I, I I guess I didn't know that story, or maybe you told me, but I was drunk and I'm remembering because <laughs> I'm drinking coffee and it's the morning. Yeah. But we just got baseball. It just started. Today is today in Detroit. They've had three games against the Reds in Cincinnati, and they won two of them. But we, it's opening day here, funny enough. Yeah, I, I, I still keep up pretty pretty closely. And I my phone's doing – I keep up pretty closely. And I was I, – I, being a Tiger fan lately has been a little rough. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm always loyal. I, I, my mother died, like – almost two years ago and she watched she got the MLB like the whole she watched the Tigers every night during she would just like she would like since I was like you know nine or ten years old she was just like a baseball fan she died at 84 and she would call me and tell me what like Cabrera did or whatever wow. and it was just like this always she would say like it was really funny because she was and I got this cup for her but she passed away, so I, I grabbed this one because I knew that she'd know I won it, you know. So, but I got it when I saw you. So, oh, really? Yeah, so I, we went and saw the Tigers and the Mets when we were there. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. Is she, was she still here? No, my mom died two years ago. What was she living in? Oh, no, she, was in she, she was in Orlando. Oh, okay, got it. She was still a Tiger fan. Like, there was Tiger stuff, like, around our house, you know. Well, they've got, uh, they've got spring training down there. I mean, they've probably got yeah. fans who go to spring training. Well, we're, like, an hour from Lakeland where spring training. Oh, wow. So we always, like, went there, too. Right. 
And yeah, I remember, I don't know if you know, for a guy this might is probably a little before you, Ray Euler, shortstop. He, yeah, before me. He was more famous, most famous for in the 68 World Series. He was a really good fielder and he was such a terrible hitter. I think he hit 135, like partly. Like, so they put him on the bench and they put Mickey Stanley, who was a center fielder on, at shortstop in the World Series. Ah. And it was like this pretty brazen move, you know? And right. And, and I don't think Stanley made any errors, you know? But was it, would that be considered like uh, in those days? Would the baseball purists be upset? Like, oh, you, you're taking your center fielder and putting him at shortstop. Like, you're. There was definitely people upset. I think. I think people are worse now, though, you know? Yeah. Like, I think now they're kind of more, you know, they're like, I mean, I, I like numbers and I like and sabermetrics to a degree, but it's like, it gets annoying to me when people, I feel like you're not even watching the game anymore. I agree. I agree. It gets pretty annoying. Yeah, like, I just feel I'm like. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with changes, but I do feel like the eyeball test. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? With everything. Yeah. You know? Like, it's just like, that's kind of thing. It's even I don't know just it, you have to it's like like even the stuff you the work you do it's like when you see this stuff like a photo a little thumbnail it's not the same as seeing it in, in real life you know right Kinda. and I think that the Tigers I'm going to keep bringing it back to baseball <laughs> <laughs> no I love I love baseball <laughs> I think that the Tigers uh suffer from they're not the national team so a lot of people don't watch them like they would maybe a Boston or, or a New York and they go by numbers more than they do watching or knowing but yeah right now we've got yeah. a whole we've got like a, a team of who the hell I don't know who the fuck a lot of these guys are we got yeah I know. Athens, but yeah we've got players who I'm I've never heard their names I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce them and we've won two games but it, it just feels like this has to be a fluke like My what, brother says that they've got some really good young players, and I know that – I think they – They are playing them yet, though, right? They're, what's they've that? Got, like, uh, they've got them in uh, minor league still or something. But, yeah, something to look forward to, I guess. I think they got, like, the best player in the country uh, – amateur player in the country this year in the draft or something. That's what I remember. Yeah, and they're not playing them. <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. Seems like the best time to play them would be during 2020 when yeah. no, nothing matters, but no. No, no, it does seem it does seem like it would be like the time to almost do publicity stuff. Well, they have sixty games and they're playing and I heard sixteen teams will be in the playoffs. So it's kinda like like if you miss like Verlander is in Houston now. Oh I, he's missing at least two weeks. Yeah. And they said he you know, if he missed he might miss the season even because I, I did I heard that yesterday because he's still because he's Verlander and he has such a connection here, they, they still talk about him on radio here. I mean, I, I pay attention to him as much as the type, you know, like I'm, you know, it's like. He's kind of a classic Detroit example of like, they got rid of him and then he flourished. Like, yeah. oh, his career was over and then what? Oh, he's uh, skyrocketing. I was I going like to say too, I, I don't watch baseball. I don't watch, I don't have a television. I don't watch sports. Yeah, I don't have a television either. I love listening to baseball. I, to me, it's like a, it's like a symphonic, it's classical music. You, you're listening to, and it probably reminds me, as I imagine you and other people, it reminds me of hearing it on the radio as a kid. Yeah. Uh, grandfather maybe was listening to it on the radio. But I got the at-bat 
MLB at bat app on my phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can listen to any Tigers game anywhere on your phone. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's super good. It's, you don't have to pay. I think, I think it might be 20 bucks a year or something. Um, really? Oh, that sounds good. It's worth it. It reminds me of too, like when I was a little kid and we had to go to bed and I'd be, I'd have a transistor radio and I'd be listening into my bed. Yeah. Tiger game, you know? Yeah. My parents would come in and go like, what the hell is that? You know, it's like. <laughs> well, I, I have the funny little twist for me is that my father, who was kind of like a tyrannical, psychological, manipulative, scary father. He, laugh, he, he was, <laughs> yeah, uh, he was not, he hated sports. Yeah. He really, he was like a greaser. He was really into cars and, you know, like making hot rods and he hated sports. So I would sneak sports. I would listen to sports and kind of like be interested in sports, but I wouldn't let him know. I had to keep it a secret. I was, I was kind a of a sports fan for most my of my brother, life. Well, my brother's two years younger than me. And he was like the most, the best baseball player for his age, you know, and he ended up having, he was just like this dominant left-handed, you know, like power pitcher, but he, he never, he had arm problems the last part because I think he threw too much. Okay. And then he told me, because my brother's very modest about, like, he ended up becoming a tennis pro after, after playing tennis for a year. You know, <laughs> so, like, so he's just, like, that good of an athlete. But he, he said that when he was younger that he – and he doesn't brag at all. He's like, he says he threw so hard, though, that he nobody would catch for him in practice. So he, like, would just throw during the game. And he would say, see, that, that's really what destroyed his arm. Yeah. Days they'd probably have, like, you know, there are all kinds of things for him. No, no warming up. Yeah. So he, but man, we, but my dad didn't want me going out with, for sports too. And I remember when I was playing little league and I was 12 and that was like my obsession. And he gave me, he wanted me to go to golf lessons. And I was like, what the fuck? And because my dad was, it turned out my dad was involved in this like mortgage fraud and he went to yeah. for like 15 months. He was the biggest East in the Mississippi. Wow. And then when he got out, he was a, a drug smuggler for like 10 years, you know? So uh, we have a lot in common, I think, maybe. <laughs> my dad was kind of like like a, a cerebral thug, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> and that, my dad, too. My dad was a wannabe grifter. Yeah, he yeah. was like a poor man's grifter. He really, he believed he could fool anybody and he would do scams, yeah. but he'd always eventually get caught. And in hindsight, my brother and I, have come to the realization that he was probably a sociopath. Yeah, uh, my mother probably but, but when you when you share stories, eventually you're like, oh, okay, this is all starting to make sense. But one of the last, because I, I, I'm estranged from him. I haven't talked to him in okay. boy, over a dozen years. Wow. Uh, and, and even before that, it was real rare. We all kind of cut him out of our lives. But one of the last like crazy ones he pulled was the Sopranos was a big I always tell this story it's so fucking crazy the Sopranos was a big deal right remember that yeah, yeah. Um, and he started taking on this Italian mafiosa persona <laughs> and uh, when I'd see him at like family gatherings he he had like a Lincoln with tinted windows he started wearing suits oh, and, right. and when he'd say hello he'd kiss me on either cheek um, <laughs> And, and then he started having like a goon with him, like a, a guy we didn't even know, just a big Italian guy. 
And I think he got he got really involved with uh, a lot of the strip clubs around Detroit, which I knew he had been involved with for years somehow because he tried to get me jobs at them. But yeah. but he started getting involved to where like all these strip clubs were owned by Italians and it was something mafiosa related. It got really weird. He was talking with a bad accent. Everything was crazy. And I would only see him periodically. So that made it really stand out. Like, wow, what is happening? And then it all came crashing to a halt. And I honestly don't know what he's done since then. I think that they kind of ruined him when they figured out that he was full of shit. I think he, he whatever his business dealings was with them, he he was done. And now he, as far as I know, he lives out in like the sticks by Ann Arbor. Yeah, it's a mystery. I'll never know what exactly happened, but I'll never forget the Italian phase that coincided with the Sopranos that my dad had. Yeah, yeah, because like I remember on my Zoom interview that you were expecting. Oh yeah, it's, it's okay. I end up it, it ends up being like this a lot. I mean, not like this exactly, but it does because I I know a lot of people I interview I know to some degree or I know well even you know yeah like uh, we'll end up you know they'll end up start, they'll bring up something that they know like about us or something you know and I'll be like, it'll be completely like off the wall so. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they're usually like good story like good story you know because i know a lot of people tell good stories so yeah it's like yeah my dad we moved to cleveland afterwards oh then, you had to like escape well yeah kind of actually my dad got a job a really good corporate job in detroit and we were there for a few months and he got caught writing some ungodly amount of bad checks in um, florida so he went to jail for like eight months or I don't know how long for like, but he got fired from the job, you know? So, but, but the uh, people that own the company and it was like a, a rust proofing company they did for cars, you know, it was like this executive. Yeah. Zbart rust proofing. Yeah. Zbart. I was about to say Zbart. Zbart had an office down the street from me in Redford. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh. And we used to play bait. This is all tying together. We used yeah. to play baseball on the vacant lot in front of uh, a steel company called Profile. It was like a, a steel rolling mill company right next to the Z-Bart, Rust Proof. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, and, um, but well, my dad got fired, but the CEO and his wife loved my mom. Hmm. Mom talked him into hiring him as a, and they had a shop in Cleveland, like managing the shop, which he considered like a demotion to him, you know, but so yeah. he involved in his mortgage fraud thing. So he was like, my parents, split up a little while after but he was like home a lot and we started having it seemed like we had more money and he was like cooking and you know, it's like and I, I was like what the hell and, and I, I remember saying to my dad I said some kid in my class asked me what you do for a living and he said tell him to mind his own fucking business wow. <laughs> I remember laughing but thinking like I never got an answer you know <laughs> now, I got an answer when I was 14 that he when he got arrested yeah 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 and he, he had like Don King's lawyer and he was friends with like Don King, you know, they used to go watch like football on Sunday, but, but my yeah, dad starting to get, starting to get more and more suspicious. Yeah. My, <laughs> my dad had a, a weird anti, he wanted me to play golf because he said that's the way to connect and become like, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had no interest, but it's funny because my brother golfs now, but I used to go, golf with him, but we would sneak on courses. Like, I only liked it when we snuck on, you know? Like, we'd sneak and just play. Or yeah. we'd 
balls from the driving range in his head, but I'd never like <laughs> wanted to be like a real, you know, the real deal. But my dad, uh, he thought it would connect you. Yeah. In his later years, he died in 2009. He was watching, he lived in Fort Lauderdale. He was watching the Marlins like all the time. And I was like, all of a sudden you're obsessive. He, he was trying not to get, or trying to get me not to go out for sports and all this kind of thing. And I was why is this like all of a sudden this is like, you know, and he's telling me stuff and he's, he, he's kind of, he's behind me on baseball knowledge just because he hasn't been paying attention to it. But it was like fun catching him up. I mean, my, my dad, like with his faults, he was an amazing conversationalist. He was hilarious. I mean, he was ridiculous. He just didn't give a shit about like normal, like interactions and like I remember, he he died at seventy four. He had drug and alcohol problems and all, and he would be like, you know, he still had that swagger when he was like, you know, in his seventies. And some guy would say something. He goes, "You fucking pussy." He'd be like, like, I'd be like that. That guy's like twenty five. <laughs> Waits and you just called him a pussy. <laughs> I said, "You're like, you need to like." He goes, "Oh fuck him," you know. And nobody ever did anything to him, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember like. There was one period, but he was like really like read a lot and everything. But one time there was this period when he was like 70 and he didn't, I, I just have to tell you this story real quick. My cousin calls me and she's, I love my cousin. She's a little bit of a slumlord and she has a motel, a hotel kind of near where you were. By the way, that's a, I love my cousin. She's a little bit of a slumlord. That's a good thing. <laughs> she's, she's, she has a motel near like where you were at the Atlantic Center in New Smyrna. And so she calls uh, me one day when my dad's like 70 and she goes, your dad wants to be the manager of my motel. And I'm like, this, like, this doesn't make any sense. I, bad. I don't understand this at all. And I go, why does he want to be manager? And he always has, he always had an ulterior motive that mm-hmm. is what I've even think of, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, had his, he, he was so good at the ulterior motive thing. And I go, so I said, I don't, I, I said, I wouldn't hire him. I said, he's, totally capable but he's like not really to be trusted you know so she's like well i'm gonna give him a chance like a month later she calls me crying and she said she said that she hired him and it turned out that there's like this little cottage on the uh, banana river there it's like that that was where the manager lived and that's what he he wanted to live in that place oh well there you go and he just wanted to like hang out there and you know fish or whatever the hell he wanted to do. But <laughs> so I was like, I was like, I knew there was something. But uh, so she calls me and she says, I, I got complaints because it was like by the week rent by the week motel. I got people calling from here and said that your dad is uh, trading, giving r- women rooms for blowjobs if they give him a blowjob. Like, uh, like, so I'm not completely surprised. <laughs> and then, and then, then she goes. Like she, uh, I mean, this really isn't funny in a way, but it is funny too. But she's like not going looking for him. She can't find him. And she knocks on the door and it's like two in the afternoon. He doesn't answer. And then finally she just opens the door and he's like in bed with like two 23 year old women with cocaine on the dresser. And he gets fired and he calls me and he goes, God, your cousin's uptight. <laughs> and I said, well, Dad, you could have got her arrested. <laughs> and good way to start. That's a good way. Immediately, it's her fault. And yeah, it's and it's like that. Like he said, he's. And then I said, you know, you were ripping her off. You know, whatever you think you were doing to have fun, you're still ripping her off. And yeah. he goes, 
and you're also gonna maybe get her in trouble. So I remember there was a, a strip club right at the corner of is that US one, whatever the main road is that right by, right by Atlantic Center, right? Yeah. We went to that strip club. I could see where your dad might have got those prostitutes. Yeah, he was, he was well he I don't know, he he was he ended up dying at seventy four and he he I don't know, he was just uh, I mean, like, I miss talking to him because he was just, like, that guy you could call about any situation. And he was really, he kept up with everything, too. And he would have hated, like, Trump, you know. And he would, like, he, he, I mean, I remember in the 80s, he goes, that guy's a fucking joke, you know. Sure. He, He's always been a joke. Everybody always thought he was a joke. That's why yeah. it was so incredulous. Like, yeah. oh, fuck. Like, the joke, it, it's not a joke anymore. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, so, so my dad left. Oh, so I got Last story though, when we were, he was dying. He was dying in the in the hospital in the hospice, Fort Lauderdale. And my cousin is there, and my aunt. And so we all go to like Cracker Bell afterwards after my dad dies, and we're all like telling stories about my dad. And everybody knows like the deal with him. So it's like, so and my cousin, my aunt is even kind of like religious, you know. She but she loved my dad, and but my dad would say the most inappropriate things just to at least like she. Like would, she would be laughing though. She she would yeah. pretend like she wasn't, but she definitely was entertained by my dad. He was four years older than her, and his birthday was June third, and hers was June fifth. And I remember him telling me, "He goes, when I was four years old, I asked my parents for a swing set. He goes, they came home with my sister and said, this is your present.' He goes, sometimes I wish I had that swing set." <laughs> And he, so we got a cracker barrel, we'll tell him stories. And my cousin tells me, I was like, when we used to, I'll tell you, preface this with like, when I used to ride down the road with my dad, he was like this amateur historian, kind of like he knew, like every town you would go, if he was in Michigan, he would drive like, hey, yeah, right. it was farm. But he told the stories like he was there. And he, there was always vice, you know, there was always like, they had a brothel. Over, it was never like, like usual <laughs> historical, but he also knew that too, you know, but so. Yeah. So she, my cousin says when she was 15 and she said that she wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale and knew some my grandmother. I'm echoing. I don't know if it's. No, I'm, I'm not hearing it here. No. So my, I mean, occasionally my, my grand, my cousin wanted to see my grandmother. She was 15 and, and at the condo beach condo, but she didn't have a way to get up there. My dad goes, I'll take you up there. He lived down there. So she said it was the most amazing ride. They took like seven hours. They took all the back roads. They get boiled peanuts. My dad told her all these like stories about every place that, and she goes, and they were just hilarious stories. And they get up there and they have dinner and they um, eat. And after dinner, my dad leaves and heads back. And on the way back, he was arrested because apparently the reason he took the back roads was it was a stolen car. <laughs> <laughs> All makes sense. Yeah, I mean, this could we could talk about this forever because you're making me think of. Other, I mean, just a couple things I'll say real quick is that my father was married six times that I know of, and every time they got married real quick because he wanted everything in their name. Yeah. Because of you know, he'd tell them the reasons why, but they wouldn't be the real reasons why. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was reasons, and then my uncle Richard, who's my oldest, my my father's oldest brother he's still alive and he's he's probably his mid-70s now he in my whole life he's lived in florida 
So when we were kids, we went down to Key West to visit him. Figured this would be good. It'll tie it all back to Florida, too. He was like co-owner of a restaurant in in Key West, at least according to my father, which everything is debatable whether or not this is true. So we'd go down to Key West at least twice when I was real young. We went down to Key West. And I remember really vividly driving across the bridges, you know, the, the, the highway to get there. And, and I kind of vaguely kind of remember, remember the restaurants, kind of vaguely remember I really remember was when I was probably, probably a little older, older like, I was, like under 10, I was under 10, but old but enough to remember, remember that we went down we went to down visit to Uncle Rich, Rich again, but now he lived in Vero Beach. And he lived in Vero Beach in the area where... Well, as you know, as everybody, Flor, Floridian knows, you got like the side that's the ocean side, right? And then you got like the interior. He lived like in the interior of Vero Beach. I remember it being almost like a jungle. Like uh, you had to drive through uh, a little palm forest to get in there and it was really hidden. And as far as I know, he's lived there since. But according to my father, let's see, I'll never know if this is true. The reason he had to move to this place in Vero Beach is because he was involved. The whole restaurant in Key West was a front for drugs. That oh, they were wow. doing like part of the, the cocaine trafficking or something. And then they got in trouble and had to move and kind of go into a little bit of anonymity. They might have known my father. Say again? They might have known my father. <laughs> this is really great. It's all tying together. <laughs> You got Who knows if he had his real name or not? But we'll have to we'll have to dig deeper. I think my uncle, my uncle got really into genealogy, so I've made contact with him uh-huh. and learned a lot about our family history. I probably should. He's getting old enough now, or maybe he'll spill the beans, pick his brain a little bit, and find out if uh, any of that's true. Yeah, my my dad spilled the beans, except about stuff that he was really like. Uh, but I remember like what like in Detroit when we were kids. He would even bring us into the, like the more like the African American neighborhoods to get like barbecue, like no no person I knew did that. You know, like my dad would take us over, and my dad would call this the last frontier in America. Like this is like is, he said this is where like it happens. And he took me. And that's like when I went to Detroit last time when I saw you four years ago. It was just like it felt like a lot of things too. My dad would take me into every like nook and cranny of you know ethnic group of food, you know, like the Polish neighborhood, the Hungarian back then. It was big Italian. When I was there, it was like, it was like 90% Catholic, I think. Okay. Because like we went in our elementary school, we had CCD after like Monday after school. You know, like. Yeah, catechism. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I call it catechism, but here every time I say it, people call it CCD. So I don't know what that is. We called it catechism. So. Yeah, we called it cat. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that all my friends were going to do something cool that I didn't get to do. <laughs> well, I ended up having a, in the fourth grade, I got an argument with my nun and uh, walked out and never came back because I I went to a Little League baseball game and I missed catechism and she said, where were you? And I thought if I just told her the truth, it would be, I said, I had a makeup game and I did she started yelling at me and I interpreted it like I was going to hell. So I thought if I'm going to hell, there's no reason to stick around here, you know? Yeah. It's done. <laughs> there's a lot more possibilities out there. <laughs> if, 
you've already if you've already got there, then why not? Now you can do anything. So we should probably talk about your art. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we can do that. You, I mean, you, this you, all you, informs my art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's it is. It's like that's too. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people probably feel like when they see a lot of the stuff that you do with it, more like the Detroit. But I like think about like how there's like so much like what I remember about Detroit, even like like what you do, you know? Because I remember like these monument type buildings, and you know, because there was so much money there. Yeah. One time, and like those, it's just like it's 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 kind of incredible because it's it's. I mean, then they're all like ruins all of a sudden. And all I used to hear about Detroit for years in between is like how it's so dangerous you can't even go there, you know, which I, I don't know how true that was or, you know, there's probably a bit of danger, but. I, I think I, I feel like this might even been something that I told you when you were here last time, but I feel like it, it's, it's a little bit fictional on both sides. Like it's never as bad as people say, and it's never as good as people say, Uh, especially like now there's a lot of, well, more so now than ever, there's more positive articles about Detroit, but, and it's certainly different than when I was a kid. I'm 45 now. So for me, I vividly remember Detroit in the eighties because I was a kid. So it really impressed upon me the 1980s and it was definitely rough in the 1980s just like every city was rough in the 1980s like it was I I feel like you you mentioned the riots when you were a kid like well that kind of civil unrest was happening in cities all over really the world but the country for sure at that time and I feel like the 1980s we know that there was a big fucking drug problem there was a lot of chaos in inner cities in the 1980s so i i grew up hearing the the racist classist rhetoric from white suburbanites my father was thrown out and we're this and we're that we didn't even know what we were saying what what they were saying we just there was just i don't know 20 different racial slurs that were tossed about without you even knowing that that's what was happening until you became a little older and started to go, wait a minute, huh? Like, and you started to think about it. But, but yeah, we went into the city a lot. Well, Redford, where I grew up, it's, I could walk across the border and be in Detroit. And yeah. it was what I, what I refer to it as, as the white trash buffer zone, because it was poor or at least lower middle-class white people who didn't want to live in Detroit a lot of times because of racism, but also just in general, they're, you know, kind of like uh, tribalism, like right. we stick together, you know, those people stick together, but they couldn't afford to go any further away. So they just were right there. <clears throat> and even to this day, and again, I think this is like a lot of inner cities or just cities all over the country, maybe the world. When you have, when you have like a border the people just on the other side of the border and the people just on the inside of the border, that's where kind of the roughest things are. Like if you were to enter Detroit from the surrounding encircled suburbs today, probably still the roughest neighborhoods in Detroit are right there. Uh, It's like these fringe neighborhoods 
are still some of the roughest places. So the mentality that suburbanites often have is based on that. Like you go in and you see it and go, oh shit, this is yeah, yeah. But it's That's often also probably like a lot of tension too, right? Tension, racial yeah. tension. Also, a lot of the drugs. Yeah. And again, I think this has a lot to do with suburban people because when I was a kid and I got into drugs, you know where we went to buy drugs? We crossed the fucking border and yeah. bought drugs in Detroit, but right there. And I still think that's the case where a lot of the drug houses are set up right around that perimeter and they're supplying suburbanites with drugs. So it's this real like fucked up symbiotic relationship and, and just continues to fuel the fire of racist suburbanites who are still to this day terrified of entering Detroit or God forbid getting off the freeway at the wrong exit. You know, like I remember being told you had to lock your doors the minute you drove into the city limits. Um, That kind of like uh, mythology perpetuated for generations really at this point. But yeah, for, for, all that being said, it's really my neighborhood alone where I've lived in Detroit for approaching 20 years now, I have seen this neighborhood turn from a place where occasionally the street would be taped off with police tape because of a shooting, uh, very frequent gunfire at night. Like a lot of yeah. neighborhoods I lived in Detroit, you'd hear gunfire at night and you, you just get used to it. You don't think of it as a murder. You think of it as, oh, people with guns shooting them off. Yeah. Fun or for whatever the fuck. But you don't like, oh, people are being killed. It just is too frequent for that. But that's what my neighborhood was like when I first moved here uh, in 2001. And now I see young, like 20-year-old white kids jogging yeah. uh, in the morning. It's it's changed a lot. And that that kind of stuff is... The intangible stuff that you can't quite like, I'm not sure if you can get data on that, but you can, again, to go back to our baseball analogy, you can put the eyeball test on it. It's, sure. The city has changed in that way, for sure. Yeah, I think sometimes, like, the, the, speaking of data, I've heard people, urban planner type people that I'm friends with even, say comments about how of Orlando are way better than they were, you know, because they were kind of like, poor and they were a little tougher but like the part they were talking about one part was like really cool area and record stores and it was just badass like area and now it has no character (laughs) it's just just like i'm just like it had um you know a lot a lot going on that i thought but it doesn't translate to their world you know yeah like character is not like isn't like an academic thing really (laughs) <laughs> oh, and also I, I feel like uh, for me and maybe for a lot of people, I rebelled from the lack of character that the suburbs had. Oh, yeah, As a yeah. child, like it was, I hated being in these places that were just so devoid of anything. I think it led to wanting to create something, wanting to create something that I don't know, had more character. Um, yeah, because your art has character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it also, for me as a kid, and probably as a lot of people, led to me wanting to do drugs, wanting to like commit crimes, do yeah, something yeah. to have some kind of life or vitality. 
Well, you want uh, excitement, you know? Yeah. You want something to make, like I like I. It's like I, I was talking to my friend. I mean, it's a it's a bad and a good example, but like how eighteen year olds become like Islamic terrorists or white supremacists or whatever. And I said, I think when you're eighteen, and or they join, you know, the military when they're really not like the person who would join the military, which I did actually. But it's like they just want some it's excitement, something different. It's yeah. It's just a, like an impulsive thing. Yeah. It can be a real bad choice, for sure. Yeah. Um, watch out. Cover from that, you know? Some people go down that path and they don't come back. I feel grateful that I did, but but I, I do feel like the worry, I wouldn't say it's a worry. It's more like a reality mm-hmm. that what happens is people try to turn to, to fix, you know, the words like this, like fix a city like yeah. Detroit. But what they end up doing is like suburban night, suburban fight. Right, right. There's a word for that, but like, I mean, gentrify obviously, but like it starts to feel like, oh, if we could just make this more like the suburbs, no, yeah, yeah. be safer and cleaner. And yeah. you know what, what, what that does is it just makes it like there's, there's a, no unpredictability and when there's no unpredictability it's boring yeah exactly my favorite cities are places that are a little bit fucked up like i really love new orleans and detroit mexico city i mean they're all kind of like places that have problems but they're yeah. like they have a lot of character a lot of soul right they're, like they're they're i mean they always have a lot of creative people too they have <laughs> drugs and alcohol and <laughs> but they're like I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think that when things are too perfect, because like Orlando, there, there's an effort to kind of micromanage the city, you know? Sure. They're like a Disney kind of thing, but there's enough screwed up things like in, in and around the city that keep me at least entertained and amused. <laughs> like, like there's like places like people like don't ever go to this neighborhood. And it's like the place I go eat, you know, like, yeah. like, Jamaican area, like there's one area in West Orlando, the Pine Hills, people call it Crime Hills, and it's really, but it has all these Jamaican places, and has these barbecues, it's like this amazing area to eat, and it's like cheaper, and it's just, it's more fun, it's like, it looks cooler, you know, it's like, it's good. Yeah, 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 I, I, I do think it's, it'd be hard to get rid of all of that in Detroit, I don't think that that's going to happen, yeah. it's just too big and sprawling. But, but there's definitely, I, I mean, I'm even like, as I'm saying it, I'm kind of starting to criticize myself because a part of me knows that there's neighborhoods now that, or areas where I used to go that I, I don't have any interest in going there anymore. Like they've changed enough. Yeah. The, the bars or the restaurants I used to like are gone. But I'm criticizing myself as I'm thinking that because I also know like, yeah, but that's fucking normal. That's normal for a normal city. Like, right. imagine if you're in New York City or you grew up in New York City. How often have you seen your neighborhood turn over and change? Like, it, I think it's okay that that happens. It happens so slow around here. And there's always other places to go. But, but yeah, that being said, you know, there, there's what has kept me here and what I think draws people here is in danger of vanishing. And if that happens, well, okay, then maybe uh, you find it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I get a little bummed out. when I think it's gone here a lot of times, but it's here, you know. 
it's definitely here a lot more than you just have to kind of search a little more and you know yeah and i don't know there's there's always especially too there's like as long as there's people coming in from like different cultures and different you know or there's even like some poverty which i hate to say but like makes it sometimes makes it interesting because it, you go to the place so where they're they're not doing everything like they're not branding every particular you know thing yeah. everything's being um, just kind of done in the way they can do it or the way they just you know know well, yeah and for me that's just because you're not having everything dictated by the people who have the money yeah yeah you know the people come in with the money and can be entrepreneurs because they have the backing or they have you know they've never had an issue with poverty or whatever it is and it would suck to have that be the only yeah. character that's everything's designed by people who have the ability to be entrepreneurs like I, I was thinking about it, like i have a friend who bought a condo in south beach in 1991 for 14 grand and it was like it was like a war zone there you know yeah. <laughs> and now he's like in the middle of this like he could sell it for like Oh, half two billion dollars i don't know you know do an airbnb or something and just be loaded right like just wrap that up. holy crap but he but it's it's just amazing how like that place and i was watching an anthony bourdain episode when he was in Miami, and he said that cocaine is a you know fixed this like paid for like south beach and all that kind of thing like this and, and brought miami's economy back you know it's like it is interesting now because all these people were needed like legal kind of fronts too so so they end up building things and and i thought the idea that you know that actually a lot of illegal activity actually is what kind of builds a lot of places anyway so you know you might say just america <laughs> that was uh part one of the interview with scott hawking we ended up talking about an hour and 40 minutes and as you could tell the first 40 minutes were a lot about baseball and telling stories about our father and exchanging some detroit stories Part two is the rest of the interview, and it's a little bit longer, but we, mo we talk about art and we talk about baseball and our fathers.